Welcome uh, to another City on the Edge show, and before we go into this one, I just want to uh, give a quick disclaimer. This is our Albuquerque beer history. It was a a live uh, recording, and it was a little bit rough. Um, We had the brilliant idea of doing uh, the beer history show at the new High and Dry Brewery at Adams Northeast, which is a, a lovely little establishment that you should definitely check out. But unfortunately, uh, we did it on a Friday night and we didn't um, clear out the room or anything like that to uh, to make way for people who actually wanted to see us. And as a result, there were a lot of people at the brewery that had no idea who we were and no interest in beer history. And instead, they wanted to to drink beer and talk with their friends, which isn't really a problem. That's what breweries are there for, except for the one huge table right in front of us who, frankly, I think they decided they were going to, they were going to fight us. So you'll hear some, uh, a lot of background noise and, uh, and some heckling. <laughs> um, but I, I think it just, uh, it just goes to show our commitment to bringing you Albuquerque history, no matter what dire conditions we have to work in. Um, we went ahead and uh, decided to put this one up because it's actually a pretty good interview with uh, with Chris Jackson of Darkside Brew Crew. Um, he's also the author of Duke City History on Tap, and uh, you know, thanks to him for for putting up with this uh, this situation. And I think it actually turned out to be a pretty good conversation. And you should definitely check out his book. Um, and if you uh, if you find that it's just uh, too much to bear, well, we'll be back next time with a with an episode in our more typical format. So, thank you once again for listening. Thank you to um, High and Dry Brewing for the uh, for letting us do our recording there, even though it, it didn't quite work out. Um, and thank you, Chris Jackson and Darkside Brew Crew. Oh, and thanks to all of our patrons as well uh, for supporting what we do uh, monetarily, which is always welcome. So without further ado, here is the, the, uh, the battle at high and dry brewing between us and a table of, uh, let's just say it, obnoxious drunks. This is the City on the Edge podcast, Albuquerque's only, as far as I know, uh, history, and what's that? (laughs) All right, Albuquerque's history podcast. I'm trying to make sure that people in the other ends of the room can hear us. Albuquerque's most talked over podcast. (laughs) Podcasting live from a brewery is really fun so far. Yeah. The only podcast that can't hear itself. I know you guys all think friends are so great, and talking with friends is so great, but I'll tell you what's better, podcasts. You guys hear this? It's about to happen. And you're going to listen to that instead. Okay, and we are joined today uh, by myself, Ty Bannerman. We've got uh, Nora Hickey, 
Mike Smith, and uh, our um, our uh, guest today is Chris Jackson, the editor in chief of the New Mexico Dark Side Brew Crew, which is Albuquerque's uh, premier and most comprehensive brewery site. He is also the author of Albuquerque Beer: Duke City History on Tap, a book which is available for sale up here if you're so inclined. Hello. Is it working? There it is. Hello. All right. <laughs> And I thought we'd start today, I, uh, I went delving into the newspaper archives, and I found what is possibly the first description of a brewery opening in Albuquerque. It's all the way from 1883, September 28th, 1883, and I'd like to read you a few uh, selections from it. Okay, Albuquerque's Brewery. Malt and hops triumph over glucose and glycerin. About a quarter of a mile north of the post office, directly on the Atchison, Topeka, and Santa Fe Railroad track, is the new Albuquerque brewery of Mr.s DeMars and Pater, of which mention has been made several times already in the press. A journal reporter has discovered that the walk to this fine establishment was but a pleasant appetizing stroll from the heart of the city, and his arrival there was met with ample recompense for a journey of 20 times the distance. The brewery is now under full headway and presents a scene of activity most encouraging. To the left, in front as one enters, are the ice houses and an 80-foot cellar. To the right, a row of sitting rooms supplied with tables and sideboards and a large ware room for storing hops, malts, and other brewer supplies. Um, the malton hops used in the brewery are of the finest quality, and thus far, the supply has been purchased of F.C. Herman and Charles Ellerman of St. Louis, two dealers of unquestionable reputation and character. This reporter observed in the vats what seemed enough beer to supply the whole territory for some time to come. Too much cannot be said in praise of this beer. So, apparently, if we weren't... <laughs> Thank you. Wow. If you weren't alive in 1883 um, and of drinking age, which I think was about six at that point... Uh, you missed out. Those were those were apparently the golden age of beer. So, 1883 to 2007 or 18. We are here literally in Albuquerque's newest brewery, um, high and dry, uh, only about uh, two weeks old. So Chris Jackson is here with us. Right. Say hi to the nice people, Chris, and do your best to project. Hi to the nice people. Okay. <laughs> so Chris, uh, tell me about your project here. What is, the, uh, what is the book, and what is it about? Can you kind of give me an idea, a basic idea of how it works? If my mic won't get cutting out. Uh, the book was, it's part of a series of history books about craft beer in the United States. Um, they focus on single cities, and so I was just given the opportunity to write about the history of beer in Albuquerque, and I love beer, obviously. I wouldn't have started a website about it. Nice. And... I love history, and it just kind of came all together, and I managed to write it in about six months. About six months. And what uh, drew you to the project? Why did you decide to write about the history of beer? I was offered, yeah, I was offered the project, actually. This wasn't one of those, like, difficult stories about, oh, God, I had to pitch this book to 20 publishers. No, I just, they, the publisher contacted me and said, we got your name from another writer, and would you like to write this book? So big, big thanks to Professor John Stott. He was Wait, the one who recommended me. That happens? Like publishers will contact you? That sounds amazing. Yeah, it, <laughs> it's very rare, I know, so. Is it because That's you great. have the website? 
Yeah, I think the website had a big part to do with it because they were fairly confident that I knew everyone active in the brewing scene and then it was just a matter of using those people to find the people who had sort of retired or moved on from the late 80s, early 90s. Obviously, no one was left from that brewery that Ty was reading about or uh, the Southwestern Brewery and Ice Company that existed before Prohibition. And there were two short-lived breweries in the late 1930s. Uh, one of them lasted six months, the other one lasted less than two years. And that second one finished with $120,000 in debt in pre-World War II money. So you can imagine how Oof. big of a debt that was nowadays. So uh, the thing is, though, that you're not, you didn't just, like, happen into this project. You're a great lover of beer in Albuquerque. Like, you're super passionate about it to the point that you've, uh, you've been running this site, New Mexico Dark Side Brew Crew, for um, years now, right? Yeah, we just uh, celebrated our sixth anniversary of the website. Tractor threw us a little party. It was mostly just us sitting around drinking the porter we made last year. They brought that out of the archive. So, vulgar display of porter. Our nice little Pantera reference. Uh, should still be a tractor. I'm going to take your word for it because I can't hear anything. <laughs> how, how did it form? The, the uh, it largely group. formed out of the, the simple question of what's on tap. We wanted to know what beers were on tap at what breweries. And that was really before the breweries were using Facebook and Twitter and Instagram to get the news out themselves. So we decided, well, there's like 10 breweries at the time. And what if we put all 10 of them and all their information together in one place? And we just thought, nobody gives a damn about our opinion of beer. But if we just give people the facts about beer, they can make up their own opinion. And is there, is there anything in particular about beer that draws you particularly? Like, what, what is it about beer that you, uh, you felt like investing a significant portion of your life and personal resources and so forth into? Um, Mostly, I guess it's genetic. My, my, <laughs> everyone in my family drinks beer, but um, I think it was just the atmosphere of the, of the breweries themselves. You know, they aren't bars. Yeah. They're not like singles hookup places. Well, Marble is on a Saturday, but uh, you know, otherwise it's yeah, it's it's just you know you go there and people aren't there to get wasted. They're not there to start a fight. Um, well, okay, so let's let's talk a little bit about the book and about uh, history of brewing in Albuquerque. Um, so I noticed that a lot of your book has to do with Newtown itself, which is a part of Albuquerque that started in 1881. Are you aware of any brewing that was going on in New Mexico prior to that or, or uh, in Albuquerque, the, uh, the Via de Albuquerque? Was there any kind of brewing or anything going on then? Not, not really. Um, the biggest thing was 1880 was when the railroad got here. Huh. That's the railroad, right? Yeah. And the reason you couldn't, you know, back then they didn't think you could grow barley in this state. You couldn't grow hops in this state. So the ingredients weren't local. And huh. transporting ingredients for beer or transporting beer itself in a covered wagon was not an option. Um, so it really wasn't until the railroad got here in 1880, which was, of course, in Newtown, that we saw the arrival of the trains carrying the raw ingredients uh, that brought that to the city. And that's why most of the original breweries were probably all within about a block or two of the railroad. Uh, I never thought to connect the, uh, the, the brewery culture here with the railroad directly or with the bars directly, but that makes so much sense. Yeah. Totally does. Yeah. So basically, huh. uh, the, if you look through the old information, they, for whatever reason, they would talk about the breweries are leading to public drunkenness. Yeah. It was a big That's town council meeting. That's the whole goddamn that. point. 
but they never named them. Yeah. <laughs> I, I guess it was just like brewery. It's just oh, very yeah. generic. Um, so the first one that actually had a name was the uh, Southwestern Brewery and Ice Company. And that was started up in 1889. Wow. Uh, these guys came out of from St. Louis and they started that up. Part of that building, of course, is still standing there. If you look at the railroad tracks, uh, just south of Lomas, you can kind of see it. It's where Gar- the Garcia family recently purchased that whole land. But the, the, the brewery tower is there. It was five yeah. stories tall. It was the tallest building in Albuquerque. This is Glorietta we're talking about? Yeah, yeah. yeah. So it, yeah. Southwestern Brewery and Ice Company was yeah. the company name. The beer was packaged under Glorietta. Huh. So the, did an alcoholic start it or No, Germans. Who, it was oh. Germans. Huh. Um, and back then they used to brew mainly lager. Uh, and, and the joke in brewing is lager takes longer. So they were brewing 30,000 barrels of beer in a you know, fairly wow. primitive system in around 1910. And uh, Glorietta Lager was distributed throughout the Southwest. To put it another way, they made 30,000 barrels of beer a year at a time when there was 10,000 people living in Albuquerque. Whoa. Wow. wow. That puts it in perspective. It's <laughs> pretty impressive. I mean, some of that had to go to people passing through, right? Yeah, I mean, again, <laughs> they were right on the railroad, too, so they yeah. could just package it onto the train. Oh, interesting. Uh, people found Glorietta beer labels out in California, Oklahoma. So wow. it, it oh, pretty cool. much went in all directions, yeah. They were the that, first New Mexico brewery to distribute. Now, that, uh, that brings me to my favorite um, early Albuquerque advertising um, for Glorietta beer. This is an ad that came from the Albuquerque Journal in 1912. And I'm in love with it because of how weirdly obscure it is. Like, it's, it's in English, but I can't understand it. So it says, do you know any simple snits? They are a cross between a hair trunk and a celluloid collar. Which, man, that must have been a serious burn back in 1912, but I have no idea what the heck is being celluloid. talked about there. We have the laugh upon them. They are still knocking glory out of beer. They acquired their name Simple Snit because they cannot tell the difference between our old brew and the present one. Don't be a Simple Snit, become a live wire and use Glorietta beer to the exclusion of all others. And I can't, that is the most 1912 thing I think I've ever read. Like that, I, that, that, that seems like something from a whole different universe. But so do you have any idea like what Glorietta beer was like? Was it a lager or an ale or a... It was mainly lager. Um, lagers were popular back then. They, they did do other German-style beers. They used to have these, they, they called them Bach parties. Bach parties? Bach parties. Like a block party, but for yeah. Bach? Yeah, so the, the Bach parties were, uh, they would just invite everyone from Albuquerque over to the brewery, and in the big parking lot, they would all just gather, and they would tap the barrels that they'd been aging the Bach in for a year. And... Um, the uh, police chief or sheriff, whoever we had back then, he didn't really like those parties because basically it would be like thousands of Albuquerqueans drunk in the streets oh. for, for days on end. What could so. that possibly be like? So there thousands of uh, Albuquerqueans drunk in the streets, a, a scene that none of us are familiar with today. Nope. Unless we've gone downtown after 6 p.m. at any particular day. Um, okay, so uh, tell me about how did Glorietta Beer sort of uh, meet its end? Well, two things kind of killed it in the end. Obviously, Prohibition was eventually coming. Um, but there was, there was a fallout between the owners and the brewmasters. They, they had a big falling out uh, in about 1917. They, they basically they got in a fight over who was really in charge of it. And in the end, they, had, they were forced by the banks to sell it. So a former mayor of Albuquerque and three of his friends bought the brewery. 
And they, they got to brew beer for like about a year and a half. And then all of a sudden the federal government said, eh, prohibition. And so next thing you know, in, in uh, January of 1920, all commercial brewing, legal commercial brewing ceased in the United States. Way to create modern organized crime, you know, prohibition. Yeah. <laughs> Come on. <laughs> what became so, of the building? Or uh, it, it remained an ice company. It actually was an ice company all the way into the 1970s, by which point people finally realized we don't need to pay for ice. They so, pumping out the ice? yeah, the ice, the ice kept pumping out for a very long time. So, Prohibi- uh, um, prohibition is just such a nerdy idea. Okay. You know, it's amazing to me that it like went through. Like there were enough like really nerdy politicians or something to like make that happen. It's stupid, right? It, it was a religious thing. It really became a big religious crusade thing too back in the day. So, you know, we talk about you know religion getting involved in government nowadays. It was it was involved back then too. Oh. It was a very it's a moral crusade they used to say. Now we wasn't the drinking of hard alcohol really heavy or is that just a myth they I I have no idea I, yeah, I have no idea if it was really that heavier now or then or at any point in history you know um, I don't think they really kept great statistics it was just an image um, again it was just this moral crusade to save the nation um, at a time obviously when the world was starting to go to hell with World War One and everything moral panics Thank okay, you, so that lasted about 10 years, right? Uh, it lasted from officially until 1933. And then commercial brewing started up again um, in places like Milwaukee and St. Louis in 1934. Okay, so it, it wasn't like a federal... Not everybody started up again at the same time, is what you're saying? Well, it was just kind of who had the money to restart it and could they get their equipment working again. I mean, everything was essentially either converted for other use or mothballed for over a decade, so, you know, there's a reason Prohibition, after it happened, we didn't see small breweries. They they didn't really exist anymore. It really became centralized by um, the big guys up in, like, Miller in Milwaukee. So that was kind of of the beginning of the the mega beer company, was after Prohibition, it killed off all the weaker ones, right? The smaller ones, the more vulnerable ones. And then Anheuser-Busch, and yeah, and all the all the rest of them came and sort of just took over and yeah, and like I said, it, they tried to restart brewing in New Mexico, but um, the breweries were very. The first one was just called New Mexico Brewing Company, and like I said, it lasted about six months. It was sold at auction. Another owner took over, and he that was the first Rio Grande Brewing Company. It was actually from 1937, kind of like 1939 about, and then it it went belly up too. Just, were people just drinking the big brewery beer more? Well, uh, the big brewers could ship their beer all over the country now because you had the refrigerated rail cars and everything. And they just basically like seized everything economically, and they could sell their beer for much cheaper than the local breweries could. Local breweries had to still turn a profit, and yeah, just you know how that goes. Big business can sell for less and still make a, a great profit, and... And I think just, you know, we were still going through the Great Depression. That was a big thing. And so that kind of hurt a lot of the, the breweries and everything, too. Okay. So um, how, did, uh, how did brewing come back to Albuquerque then? Was it just completely dead for, like, 50 years? or? Yeah, it was dead in New Mexico for 49 years, from 1939 to 1988. And uh, it, was, uh, it was not in Albuquerque, but it was in Galisteo. Okay. There was a, a, a rancher named... Uh, uh, Mike Levis and Mike 
traveled a lot, and the big boom of the 80s at that point in New Mexico had been wine. The New Mexico wine industry had surged back to life. So he got into making wine bottles. And so he's, he was making wine bottles. Then he went up to Colorado and was like, wow, look at all these little breweries. Wow, their beer is really good. Why, why doesn't New Mexico have a little brewery? I'll make one. So he started Santa Fe Brewing Company in a horse barn. And a, and a horse barn? A horse barn. The barn. Barn. Yeah, the, he, 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 uh, was that 1988. Was that yeah. And, uh, yeah, so, so Mike started making Santa Fe Pale Ale out there. Uh, he, he bought the original Boulder Beer Company brew house, which was square. It was a square brew house. You see them nowadays. They're all round. So he, he bought this little brew house, brought it back, and, um, you know, just managed to start making his own beer out there. And he just, you know, there was no such thing as a tap room or anything. He just bottled it and sold it. That was, so that was the first uh, kind of new wave. Of, what would you call it? The, the new microbrew revolution in, uh, in New Mexico? Yeah, it was a slow-forming revolution, though. Slow-moving revolution. Yeah, it, it took a long time for them to get... Uh, other places going. There was a very short-lived Albuquerque Brewing Company around that time. Um, it made one beer, Mike's Golden Ale, named after the brewer Mike. And then that, that place shut down. And uh, it really wasn't until 1993 when what essentially happened in that part, of, that part of history was there were three types of breweries that emerged. Brewery A was an existing restaurant like Il Vicino or Assets. And they, they just decided, hey, let's put in a brewery. Uh, number two was a new brew pub, like Kelly's became, like the first Rio Bravo that existed downtown became, where they just opened as a restaurant brew pub. And the third kind kind of followed that original Santa Fe model, where it was like, we're just going to bottle beer, sell it to bars and restaurants and stores, and you can come knock on our door, and we'll just tell you, go to the 7-Eleven. And that was like Rio Grande Brewing Company, Cabazon Brewing, um, so there, you know, Sarah Blanca Brewing down in Carrizozo at the time. Those were all like that. They didn't really. The idea of like this kind of place where you just go in and order beer was alien to everyone. No one thought that would work. You had to have food, or you just had to package and sell off premises. The microbrew revolution comes to Albuquerque. You say it's like a sort of a slow-moving revolution, but I feel like it's really exploded since like what 2007 or so. Is that 2008? So why? It, it's wow. April 2008. That's the day Marble opened. The date that Marble opened is kind of the, the mark of the new boom in Albuquerque's really? brewing. Oh, yeah, by far. So what, what, uh, what influenced that? How did th why did that happen then as opposed to back in 1988 or whenever the, uh, the first microbrews were starting to open? Well, I, I think it was a combination of two things. By, now, by 2008, of course... The Colorado breweries were distributing here. We had California beers. We had Oregon beers. The, the nationwide trend was already way on this way up. The key for what happened with Marble actually can be traced back to the Chama River microbar. So, you know, Blue Corn came down to Albuquerque and, and set up their restaurant on I-25. And it became Chama River in 05. And during that time, they had opened this little tiny hole in the wall on the backside of the Sunshine Theater. And... It was revolutionary because they're like, we're just going to sell beer. Where's the food? There is no food. It's just beer. It's a tiny place that makes ju it just serves beer. And they were raking in $200,000 a year in pure profit. Wow. wow. So the, 
the guys who were in charge of the day-to-day stuff over at Chama River, which were Jeff Jeanette, John Gazigian, and Ted Rice, the brewer, had an epiphany, and they said, wait, people will just pay for beer. They don't need a restaurant. Okay, what if we open a brewery out front that just sells beer, and in the back we'll eventually be able to start bottling that beer, kegging that beer, mass distributing the beer, but our lease will be paid for by folks just coming in for a pint or to fill a growler. And so they found, you know, they, they partnered up. They found the location down on Marble Street and First. And Marble Brewery opened in April 2008. And it's all thanks to the late but never forgotten Chama Microbar. Raise them. Now, did these guys learn from, you know, were they, was there like a core group of brewers that went off and started their own breweries? Or? Oh, the, the, the delightful interconnectedness of the brewer family tree in Albuquerque? Oh, it's, it's something, yeah. So Ted came here. Ted's originally from, from Long Island. Um, he actually did his first brewing job in Florida at some, like, fancy-schmancy beach hotel in Miami Beach. And then they decided, nah, we don't need to have our own beer. We'll just get people drunk on tequila. Um, so, they, so Ted came out to New Mexico because his wife wanted to get her Ph.D. And he just started working as an assistant at Blue Corn. And then the first guy they sent down to the Albuquerque location failed. And so they sent Ted down and said, Ted, save it. And so Ted did. And a while later, Ted brought on board an assistant brewer who was a former music teacher by the name of Jeff Irway. So when Ted left to take over Marble, Jeff became the brewer at Chama. And then a few years later, Jeff went and became the brewer at La Cumbre. Now, Jeff, his assistant brewer was a guy named Justin Hamilton. Justin is now the owner and brewer of Boxing Bear. Justin's assistant brewer was Tim Woodward, who went on to to Turtle Mountain and is now the head brewer at Bosque, working for John Bullard, who used to work at Blue Corn and Chama and Marble at some point in his life. All of these guys were pretty much trained by one another. Oh, wow. the, the guy they usually credit as the, uh, the godfather, though, is a fellow named Brad Krause. Uh, he is a character and a half. He now lives in Panama, the country. Oh, wow. Yeah, and he's, he's down there, and uh, he still makes beer in Panama which has a booming craft beer scene, I've been told. And um, so Brad trained all sorts of people. Like, Brad hired a cook who was working down at Rio Bravo, the original, which is now where Burt's Tiki Lounge is, if you guys know where that, that's gone into. That was, a, that was a cowboy and western store, a clothing store, that was turned into a brew pub. And all these years later, now is a cheesy uh, 21-year-old bar. And anyway, with this cook who was working over there, I was like, I hate cooking. I want to do something different. And, and Brad said, okay, what's your name? Is Daniel Jaramillo. So Daniel's now the director of brewing operations over at La Cumbre uh, and has also worked at Marble. He worked at Assets. He's worked at the short-lived Bavarian Lager Cellar. He is a human Rolodex of information and history all by himself. And yet his usual reaction when you tell him that is, oh, okay. So it, it, it really seems like a family in a way. I mean, you talk about family tree, but it also... Yeah, it, it's, a it's a goofy, oddball family of people, and, and they've all got a thousand stories. I couldn't put a lot of them in the book because I didn't want any of their wives to get really mad about that one time when they got so drunk in the parking lot of assets that they had to be carried out. So. Well, let's talk about a little bit about the uh, what's the future of uh, the beer scene in Albuquerque. I've heard some exciting news about the Glorietta Beer Building. Have you heard this? Um, we've heard they they have some plans for that whole area. They're turning that whole area into like a big entertainment district. 
Um, if they if they're gonna go into that building though, they better take in like the hazmat team of hazmat teams because there is a lot of uh, asbestos and other things. Yeah, lead, pigeon poop, dead rats. According to a yeah, well, Wait, can we ask what your favorite beer in town is? Or are you not allowed to Do you get to, to have say? one of those? Dude, oh, my favorite beer? The most common question I'm ever asked. My favorite beer, favorite brewery? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah it's whatever I'm in the mood for that day. It, it really is. It varies. If I, there are days I'm like, I want an IPA. Scale tempers back. Hallelujah. <laughs> or it's just, you know, I need stout. Stout. Um, and as for brewery, I want to go someplace crowded. Let's go to High and Dry. I want to go to someplace quiet. Go, Let's yeah. uh, hang at Tractor Knob Hill. I want to see a band. Let's go to Marble. Well, not the bands at Marble, but, you know. It, yeah, it just depends. You know, if I, my dad's with me, I better go someplace with food. Let's go to Nexus and stuff ourselves full of fried chicken and waffles. So, yeah, it, it just varies as to where I go. I, I try to be pretty neutral about it, but, uh, you know, I'm sure I'm, on my deathbed, I'll reveal to everyone what my favorites were. Okay, well, I uh, I really thank you for coming thank out here you. tonight and yeah. talking to us. I'm feeling like uh, thank you, Chris. It's been strange. What? Well, yeah, it has been a bit strange. Like but, he has books. Uh, Chris has his books up here. Um, they are going to be for sale, and he's yeah. uh, he's autographing them. It's a great book. I've read it myself. And then on Wednesday night at 7 p.m. in a much quieter venue, we are going to be at the Unitarian Church. Uh, we're working with Maria Jones. We're going to be talking about uh, Black history in Albuquerque. It's going to be a it's going to be good. pretty fantastic yeah. show. And yeah. um, I think you might even be able to hear us there. So yeah. that would be good. None of you are invited. Don't come. You're too yeah. loud. <laughs> too <laughs> rowdy. If you made it this far, congratulations. You've, uh, you've listened to what I think was our most challenging show. So thank you for... Uh, doing that and like I said we are going to be back to our normal format in a couple of weeks here we're gonna have a, a great story on uh, some of the Japanese internment camps in New Mexico um, so look for that in a couple of weeks and then we'll be that'll be kind of the official kickoff of our real season so to speak so thank you once again <laughs>